This morning's reading is from Ephesians 5, verses 22, through to 6, verse 4. Wives, mumble, 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 mumble. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children and parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that was well read. Um, We have this series called Junk Drawer. I don't think I have to extend the metaphor too much here in that what we're doing is is saying, use that picture. You open up an old drawer in your house and it's filled with this old stuff and you think, is is this useful or can I get rid of it? And and, uh, we'll get to how this text has been that kind of challenge to some people. Um, and I think I will remember for a long time the mumble, mumble, mumble. <laughs> really, really good. Thank you, Jill. So I thought we'd start off with the what's this for, and some of you would remember this more than me uh, right here. Now, I know that's a particular shape, and you're probably like, that's not the kind we're used to. But apparently, just before I started attending this church, it's a strange story because uh, I started attending here in the mid-'80s um, as a teenager, and I didn't know this till some time later that there had been a debate or a conversation. Let's use the word conversation. That's what people want to do when they're being friendly um, and instead of debate or argument. And the debate was about these. Now, so some of you know what this is. And if you read your bulletin, you'll know what it is. This is a head covering. Now, this one I found the image on Etsy. 
So apparently, like, it's kind of a, Etsy's like a craft thing online, right, and all, all kinds of stuff. So this is kind of current day. This is a head covering. And there was a discussion. Some of you could fill me in on this, um, many of you who were here at the time, at Sutherland Church in um, the 1980s on whether women should wear head coverings in church. You were here then? You remember that? Um, and I guess... I guess the conclusion was it's not necessary, judging by looking out, right, Um, at some point. Uh, But it comes from a text in Corinthians, and there was this kind of conversation. I bring it up because it fits into a larger view of what we're doing this morning, looking at Ephesians 5 and 6, which contains some of the best, but also some of the most controversial passages of Scripture in the New Testament, The book of Ephesians certainly contains much of the best, uh, lofty presentations as to the truth about God in this whole book. The section that we're looking at, if you just, if you did what we just did, if you just took this section and read it by itself, or even tried to teach it by itself, and I say this convinced of this, if you tried to do that, you're going to get it wrong. So anytime you hear anyone say, wives, submit to your husband, the Bible says that. Um, You can just say, well, you're getting it wrong. Because you're not talking about the rest of the book and the rest of the context. And certainly what follows. So I'm mindful that this has been used through history to abuse what the larger text means. Now that's true of many passages of scripture that you can take this thing, and you've got to be really particularly careful of this when the person quoting it is using it in a way that, you know, benefits them. Um, Probably not a ton of Jesus in that kind of way of operating, but it does happen. In this section, I'm mindful of this. If you ever thought it would be a good idea to comment on someone else's marriage, right? Uh, And of course... As a minister, you wind up talking to people about marriages. They come to you if there's a difficulty sometimes. Or, um, but it's, it's a minefield, right? What do you truly know about the marriages of your friends, uh, other people in the church or such? And then try this next one. How about you start commenting on how your friends should parent their children? I always say... At, a man who was minister here a couple ministers ago, Dan Cochran, who's been in Red Deer for a number of years, and Dan and I were very close. And Dan, when he was younger, was always talking about, and this isn't a joke, actually, he was going to write a book with Steve Sunby, some of you might remember Steve, on parenting. And then they never did. And I asked Dan years later, why didn't you do that? He said, oh, because I had kids. <laughs> but this text is going to go, wives and husbands, so marriage comment, parent and children, And then it's going to get, after what we read, to this slaves and masters, which will make you go, what? And of course, there's another example where scripture has been used to do very un-Christ-like things, obviously, by going, well, it says, slaves obey your masters. Can you imagine how that would have been used in the United States before the Civil War? The Bible says. So we have to be careful with this. We'll start with a guiding concept. And that concept is that our relationships matter. So the whole thing I'm trying to get us to in this church as we move forward is this this should be the fundamental guiding question for you as you live your Christian life. How is your life 
and the life of the community of the church bearing witness to the love of Jesus Christ in the world. That's why the church exists. The church doesn't exist simply so that the members of the church can feel good. The church exists as that instrument to bear witness to the love of Jesus Christ in the world. In light of that, your relationships will be part of that bearing witness. Now that is quite lofty for many of us. How you relate to one another is going to be part of how you bear witness to the love of Jesus Christ. So we'll start with that guiding concept. And we will back up again that if you take this section alone, you'll get it wrong. So what we're going to do is we're going to zoom out and look at the book as a whole briefly, and we will get to Ephesians 5. When you look at the book as a whole, its structure, this book, and you ought to read the whole thing, it's only six chapters long, you could read it today. Read it in between this and the, and the, and the uh, building congregational meeting after. That'll serve you well. This book is beautiful and glorious and majestic. It is astounding and powerful and contains life-giving theological truths. This book tells us some of the best things about God and about faith in Jesus Christ. When you read this book, if you read it seeking the presence of the Holy Spirit, seeking to be aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit, you will be caught up. It is an astoundingly beautiful book. It's six chapters long and it has this structure. Look at the mountains behind us here. And, you know, I always make a joke whenever I do that. There's actual mountains behind there, but we put gyprock ones. Anyway, and look at the structure, and this will remind you. Ephesians, what it does is it starts at chapter 1, and it just builds up to a peak. In other words, and what's happening here as we go up the mountain is, is what we're being told as we read this letter is, here are the truths about God and how God relates to you in the world. These are the spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ, chapter 1. Here are the spiritual blessings in your life, reminding us of God's love. Things like peace. In Jesus Christ you have peace, and you can see we start to scale this mountain. You have an inheritance into his family, the family of God in Christ Jesus. In Jesus Christ, and by the way, no other way, not by your achievement. Sanctification is not in a human activity. We're involved. But sanctification, being made holy, is by Jesus Christ. And those of you who've been walking the Christian walk for, a, for some time, you know that. And you know how difficult it is if somebody believes that sanctification is human. So holiness comes from God in Jesus Christ. Unity with all things. Kind of a lofty uh, idea. Every spiritual blessing is yours in Jesus Christ. And then this word that some people love, glory. There's no such thing as anything glorious except in Jesus Christ. You can have big shows and superhero stuff, but true glory is in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And then chapter 1 is going to say, and Paul, the writer of this book, is going to say, and as, as we think of these spiritual blessings, and I can imagine I could do this with you guys, right? As we think of these spiritual blessings, I thank God for you. I thank God for you because you participate in these blessings and you live a life one with another in light of these things. Chapter 2. Remember, you were dead and you've been brought to life. And here you're going to get one of the New Testament struggles 
is, and it's a good struggle, by the way, it's good that it's not easy to do this, one of the struggles is to define evil. And so, again, when you, when you meet someone who knows just what evil is, you know, here's how it operates, here's what it is, here's what the Bible says, um, be a little bit leery because evil is tough to define. So in this section, it's going to say, you were dead in sin following the prince of the power of the air. That seems clear, doesn't it? And that's its, that's its talk of evil there. What we do know about evil is that evil is not real in the same way that good is real. In other words, evil is not creative. It can't make anything. It can only distort, pervert, and destroy. It can only lie to you. And sometimes some of you, even in your Christian zeal, treat evil as if it is of the same nature as good. Like it it has this substance to it that it does not have. It operates by lies. So you were following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, you were dead, not alive, because it's God and goodness where life is found. And then chapter 2. But you have been made alive. You've been brought from the realm of death to the realm of life by grace through faith. And some of you know these words. It's not of your own doing. There is nothing for us to boast about in this Christian life in ourselves. It's, we're all entirely dependent upon God. Isn't this great stuff Ephesians is talking about? And then this. We are God's workmanship, craftsmanship. This is somebody that you know who doesn't you know, they, whether it's kind of an art project or painting or repair of some kind, they're a craftsperson, a craftsman. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. In other words, we find our substance, our reality, and our life in Jesus Christ for good. And then it gets even better. See, we keep scaling this mountain. And we are one in Christ. You were once separated from one another. You had all kinds of things that separated you. So think about whatever those are now. Nationality, whatever. I did something yesterday that I've, I don't think I've ever done before. I watched two soccer games. For me, that, I, I, amen, and that was the great one. Go Croatia, right? Although maybe not against England, but anyway, we'll see. And it's great to watch, and it's fun to see the kind of national... Spirit. I heard that at the Croatian Cultural Center in Vancouver, they have two big rooms, and they were intending to fill them both up with big screens, but one of them was booked for a wedding. <laughs> I just imagined the noise, but anyway, it was fantastic. And so you can think of things like national pride, but the downside of these things is that they, they, these are the things that separate us. They might be gender distinctions, they might be national distinctions, they might be professional, they might be religious... And here, what Paul is talking about is once you were apart in terms of religion, Jew and Gentile, Jewish people and non-Jewish people. But in Christ Jesus, that dividing wall has been smashed. It's gone. And you have been brought together. And you who were far off, you thought you were far off from the promises of God, you have been, in the beautiful words, you have been brought near. These distinctions are abolished. You're one in Christ You're no longer strangers and aliens. And all of these divisions have been obliterated in the work of Jesus Christ. We're scaling that mountain. And then chapter 3. And in Jesus Christ, the mystery of God is revealed. And this is my favorite part of the book. So that through the church, the world might know the gospel that God is for us. So he's speaking to these people and he's saying, Now, in living your life in this world, don't lose heart. 
Don't lose heart if it seems the world isn't interested. Don't lose heart if it seems that sometimes the darkness is more prevalent than the light. There's an acceptance of the reality of the world. But then the chapter ends with this prayer. Well, it moves to this prayer and then ends with a benediction. And Paul's going to pray for these people. Don't lose heart. Here's my prayer for you. I pray that God would grant you power in his spirit or through his spirit. And I could simply say to you, each of you here and all of us together, wouldn't you like power in the Holy Spirit? But there's a reason for power in the Holy Spirit. It's not so you can shoot flames out of your fingers. There's a reason for power in the Holy Spirit. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts and that you would be able to comprehend together. It's important that this is together. That you, that you is plural. It's not just you individually, that you individually would comprehend the love of God, but the comprehension of the love of God exists in the group. We do this with and for one another. So I pray that you would have the power of the Holy Spirit for this reason, so that you could comprehend the love of God, its depth and height and width and length. And then he goes on to say in this prayer, I pray that you could know that which could never ever be known. Isn't that beautiful? And that's the love of God. And so there is this amen, amen, amen as we build. We're almost at the peak. The peak is the benediction. It's like you've, you've scaled that mountain and now you're at the top. And you're looking out at the vista. And you've got to say something or take a picture or plant a flag or something. So that is this benediction, Ephesians 3.20. You're standing on the peak of this theological uh, construction or mountain. Now to him. Doesn't this sound like a benediction? The end of something? Now to him who is able to do far... Don't leave when I'm done this, by the way. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And the text actually says amen. Now, that's chapter 3. Chapter 4, 5, and 6... Well, I simply would have a question. How on earth, after that scale, to that height, could you think that the text is going to continue after Paul has said, Jesus has obliterated these walls between us? How on earth, if you actually honestly read the Bible, could you think that he says, now, I want to tell you about human hierarchy and how people should lord over one another. What Bible were you reading to get there? You can only do that if you read Ephesians 5 without 1, 2, and 3, and 4. I actually don't think you can do it properly even if you just read Ephesians 5. But you certainly cannot do that if you read the whole book. So anytime you hear wives submit to your husbands, you know now, oh, no, 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 I know there's a lot more to it than that. So what is being said? Chapters 4, 5, and 6. Chapter 4, you have this beautiful beginning. I urge you then to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Or you might have in the NIV, worthy of the calling which you have received. What calling? What's the calling? The calling is chapters 1 to 3. If you know all these things about God in Jesus Christ, 
If, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ dwells in your heart, then live a life worthy of that calling. Do you see how lofty the call is that he's putting before us? So to think, then, he's answering the question, who's in charge and who gets to decide, is just asinine. It doesn't make any sense. Now you can hear the call. Chapter 5, we'll spell some things out. I like to call this sections like this in Scripture the don't be stupid sections of Scripture. Don't do things that just feed your appetite and don't benefit other people and even hurt yourself. So when Scripture talks about don't do things that damage the body, almost always that means the body of the church. It means people, not just one person. There are times where the other is talked about. But don't do dumb and stupid, selfish things that only satisfy your appetite. And so he's going to talk about some of those things that people struggle with. Wine and sexuality and language. Don't use coarse, filthy talk. Um, That, by the way, doesn't mean there's a list of 22 words you can't use. I mean, there might well be words you shouldn't use. But I have like a few book titles in my head sometimes. Like if, if I write books, one day they'll be called this. And one of them, excuse me here, sorry if this is offensive to people, one of them is, is called 10,000 Ways to Say F.U. Because what I've learned as a Christian growing up is sometimes people say, don't use filthy language, it's terrible, terrible. I'm not defer- defending swearing or obscenity here. But I realize in being part of a religious community, people learn to tear each other down with words and never use an obscenity. I've heard people say F.U. in the foyer without ever using that word. Just really nicely. And you know what Paul says about that language? Remember what he's just done? Why are you destroying each other? Why did you think that in your relationship with that other person, you were supposed to win? Don't use language like that that cancels somebody else out. And anger. If you really know this, the great and good gospel... Would you tear each other apart? Would you run around intent upon getting what you want and feel like? Would you ever think about another person? What they need to know is that I am the one. So now, wives and husbands. Now we get to the text. Remember where we've been. What, how will your relationships bear witness to the love of Jesus Christ? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Remember a couple of things here. First of all, the context and the language. The context culturally would have been very, very severe in terms of what it meant to be a male in that culture and what it meant to be female. Don't forget that this text, as written at that time, was actually moving people away from rigid ways of doing things. You understand that? The fact that he would say anything to the husbands at all would be revolutionary back then. So this is not trying to protect some status quo, which is how it is often used. This is saying, for a wife and a husband, what does that, what will it be like to bear witness to the love of Jesus Christ? And the answer, if you read the whole text, is that both parties are to give themselves to one another. That's it. Now, he uses different images and metaphors for this. And because you're human and you always want to know who's in charge, and that's not Jesus' thing, right? You start to go, "Uh uh-oh, it's telling the wife this, it's telling the husband this. It's not what's important at all about this text. 
You are in your relationship, if it's reflecting the love of Jesus Christ, to give yourselves to one another. Or the better language would be to submit to one another. And so he spells it out. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. But that word love and submit. Well, how did Jesus love the church? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And even when I was a teenager and wrestling through some of these things, wasn't here for the head covering debate, but certainly here for like, should women be in leadership and this type of thing? I remember thinking, if, we're, if we think we're arguing about human hierarchy, what's the picture of how Jesus loved the church? What did he do? He went right under and died. He gave himself. So who's going to be left to say, no, husband's in charge. No, wife's in charge. The whole thing's erased. Sometimes you hear, well, we discuss everything. I'm not saying we say this because Jen and I don't operate like this. But you hear some people that were maybe a little bit more um, held by certain traditional views on this. Yeah, I know, it's kind of different than it used to be. and We discuss everything, but in the end, if we can't agree, then he decides. And I, whenever I hear that, I always kind of go, really? <laughs> I mean, it's probably saying too much to... Oftentimes, some of the relationships you see where there's a lot of talk about someone being in charge, you realize it's the person who says they're not in charge who really seems to be in charge. It's a, it's a ridiculous game to play this game. It's human. It's not of Jesus Christ. It's not a goal to figure out who's in charge. And if you ever think that that's the way to do it, it's always, we have people who have testified to this in this church recently, it is always a giving of yourself. Give yourself up for the other. Don't consider your own interests first. Now, the interesting thing is, if you can't do this in a marriage, how on earth are you going to do this in the world? Because you are called, Philippians will tell us, do not consider yourself better than other people. Don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This is a model that's going to run right through. And if in your own marriage you're going to start something about who's in charge, how will you ever, and of course we see these problems, Mutual submission. I remember talking to J.I. Packer about this. I mean, theological superstar, right? It was my early days at Regent, so like the early 90s, and I took a course, and Packer was teaching some of the lectures. And he outlined, I remember he had on the board, there was a board back then, no projectors. And he had like a grid, and here's the models of marriage. There's complementary, and there's this, there's this, and there's mutual submission, and there's... And he was fairly traditional. He was actually, in a way, arguing for some traditional views, The husband is the head, and that means authority. Because this will talk about the husband being the head. Just remember that it says, in the way that Jesus was. All right? So, and then I went to talk to him about something else after, and I asked him. I said, well, how about, like, what is it? And somehow, I think that I did this now. I must have done it in some nice way. I I said, but what about you and your wife or whatever? And he goes, oh, no, no, that's mutual, mutual submission. That's the only way it actually works. And you know the truth of that. Children and parents, you think that the first thing was revolutionary? The first one telling 
speaking to husbands and saying, husbands, you ought to know some things about how you treat your wife. That would be revolutionary in those days. To think that you would say to a parent, parent, you have some responsibilities in terms of not frustrating your children. That, that, I mean, can you, that, that doesn't work back then. Children obey your parents. We've heard that. It's been quoted to all of us as kids. And may God forgive you if you've used it against your own child. Every time you're protecting your own thing, right? Like, of course there's good ways to use it. But in frustration or anger or as an attack, never good. Children obey your parents. And it's talked about the promise. But it goes on. It's interesting here because this will give away the traditional context of this. Fathers don't don't frustrate or exasperate your children. So what that means, of course, if you're a good Bible reading, is mothers can exasperate their children all they want. You actually reading the text? That's what the text says. Tells fathers not to. Moms, you're good. Do you ever think that? If you're going to read the Bible that way with one verse, you better do it with all of them. Like, uh, give away your coat. Walk an extra mile with those in need. Give everything away that you own. Well, that's not quite literal, but wives obey your... Well, that... So, parents, don't exasperate your children. Nobody would have ever expected to hear that. Children back then, there was no such thing as adolescence. There was barely a concept of childhood. Jesus Christ opened that up for us in many ways. Remember, let the kids come to me. The way that they thought of children was, was like nuisance at best. And so to say, parents, don't exasperate your kids, is another example. Even in your relationship, parent and child, do you understand that you're bearing witness to the love of Jesus Christ in the world? The Christian role, first and foremost, is not to raise kids who, you know, get the best jobs. That's our culture and our world where they think that it's to bear witness to the love of Jesus Christ. There may be different roles here, but the call is to consider how this love for the other works out, even in the relationship of child and parent. And then finally, the text part we didn't read, slaves and masters, bond servants. It's unfortunate, as I said, that passages like this have been used to uphold obviously unchristlike behavior. If you use the Bible to do unchristlike things, let's stop calling it the Bible. It's happening in our own world right now. In another book, one of the shortest books in Scripture, Paul's going to talk about runaway slaves, or runaway slave will be spoken about, and this call from the the employer, the master, to, as you come back in relationship with this person who was your servant or your slave, live now as equals. Revolutionary stuff. Every piece of hierarchy that we operate with is obliterated in Jesus Christ. So in Matthew chapter 20, this is the way of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28, there were a number of occasions like this where people came to Jesus because they you do this, right? Um, and they would ask questions like, who's in charge or who's the highest? And Jesus' answer to who's the highest is always fantastic. Because it it basically is like, in a really loving Jesus kind of way, that's about the dumbest question you could ask. 
And the fact that you're trying to figure out who's the highest, and I can tell, and he always could tell, anybody who asks who's the highest usually thinks it's them. And wants the expert voice to say, you're right, husband, you're in charge. And, and they come to Jesus and they say, who's in charge? And he speaks like this. Matthew 20, 25 to 28. You can read it yourselves. Jesus tells us what God thinks of human hierarchy. It's not like the world, Jesus says, where people lord it over each other. Isn't it amazing that he used that language? Jesus our Lord. It's not like the world where people lord it over each other. In God's hierarchy... Being high means that you serve. You put yourself under. And then he puts himself in that description. The very Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Now you want to ask again who's in charge? In Galatians 3, 28, 27 and 28, we're reminded of this. In Christ, these divisions are gone. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, or even male or female. We are one in Christ. Stop trying to figure out all of these lines. You don't bear witness very well when you do that. So, before we turn to coffee time and meeting. I have been reading this book recently. Uh, This is a beautiful man that um, I met in New Jersey a couple of weeks ago at Princeton. His name's John Swinton. He's a black guy, and he got up to speak, to present this seminar that I went to. His was one of the smaller things that I went to, and he had this strong Scottish brogue as he spoke. So there was this kind of, oh, didn't expect that. He's a professor at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And he has spent most of his life living and working with disabled people, with what many would call profound disability, cognitive, physical. And so his seminar was on what does salvation and discipleship mean for people who might not be able to understand who Jesus is, or you don't know if they can, or what might it mean for somebody who can't speak. And this book is a beautiful, beautiful book. He's coming next spring here to teach at Regent College. And I'm going to try to make sure I partake. But I thought of this because I'm certainly not equating it with the divisions we've talked about here today, except on this level. Anytime we think of some of us as higher and others lower, we fail in our witness to Jesus Christ. The world does this a lot. Now, interestingly enough, in some ways, the world is ahead of the church and sometimes obliterates some of these distinctions, and the church winds up trying to protect them. But anytime you think of yourself or others, even in good ways, so you can do this with people with profound disability, right? You think, oh, poor, oh, feel so sorry for them, right? Or you think they're not as, somehow not as human because they can't communicate, I mean, the severe example of this is that in some places now they're aborting 
uh, fetuses because they have tests that can tell you if, if there's Down syndrome. It, just, it brings up interesting questions. And so this book is basically saying it's not enough simply to include people who are disabled, like inclusivity. In Christian faith, we have to understand that we all have vocation. What that means is we all bear witness. And that person who can't talk or is profoundly disabled bears witness to the love of Jesus Christ in a way that you can't. And it's beautiful. It also has implications for healing. There's a man in here by the name of John. He tells this story. So John Swinton tells about this story. John, our man John that he knew and went to a church and couldn't speak, came to church each Sunday, loved the music and couldn't sing, so would make noises, and right? But was happy and a blessing, bearing witness to the love of Jesus Christ. And then, rightfully, healing ministry took on a strong tone in that church, which is good. We should have more healing, not less. But one of the difficulties is people started telling John that he had to be healed from his physical disabilities. And you can see that his family would say, wait a minute. Maybe it's one of the reasons Jesus didn't heal, like we think, everybody. So, in this, I'm going to read this. I don't often do this from the front. I was going to tell the story, but I think uh, Swinton is a beautiful writer. It, it can be fairly academic at points, this book, but it's filled with stories then like this. So Swinton says, A story was given to me by one of the members of the L'Arche community in Trolley, France. Um, some of you know L'Arche Jean Vanier. It's people living with people with disabilities. It's not a hierarchical thing. Um, so from this community, L'Arche in France, the story will help consolidate and embody something of our conversation thus far. Danny was a man who lived with Down syndrome. He also had a serious heart condition. One day, Danny returned to his community after visiting the cardiologist in Paris, and one of his friends asked him where he'd been. To see the doctor, replied Danny. And what did the doctor do, his friend asked. And Danny replied, he looked into my heart, and his friend smiled. And what did he see there, Danny? And Danny paused and looked intently at his friend. He saw Jesus, replied Danny. And what was Jesus doing? Danny paused, smiled, looked away, and then back and said, He was resting. Danny smiled and looked away again. For Danny, having Jesus in his heart was not simply a useful way of describing and illustrating the pneumatological, that means Holy Spirit, the pneumatological indwelling of the Holy Spirit. For Danny, Jesus was literally in his heart, and he was resting. And I ask the readers of this book, is Jesus resting in your heart? You get where I'm going? All human hierarchy and division, superiority, is destroyed in faith in Jesus Christ. What ought we to learn from Danny? How ought we to submit to one another? Now, you can tell me that some other way works, but I've lived long enough to know the truth. And this is the truth of Jesus Christ. He gave himself. So you, 
Certainly, you might have a role as parent, and that implies guiding, directing, of course. But how ought you, in each of your relationships, to give yourself? And in this, we'll bear witness. We've got to do it as a church, too. Faith in Jesus Christ, because of what God has done for us, this scaling of the mountain, means that we can reflect this in how we live with one another that the world would know. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I want to echo the prayer that James prayed earlier, that we are here in large part because of those who have come before us and followed you So even as we think that there would be some who certainly at that time, I don't know how you could translate it to now, who would be disturbed at hearing particular interpretations of things. There have been times when even in our own context, Christian faith has been used to protect lines and status quo. Often, we would say, at the expense of bearing witness to the love of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be mindful of those who see things differently, but that we wouldn't shrink back. And here's why I pray that, Lord, in my faith. Because I know just a little bit of what you've done for me. You, who are above all things, you humbled yourself and became obedient even to death on a cross. Forgive us for trying to protect human hierarchy and structure. And let us know, wherever it is in our interpretation of these things, what it means to humble ourselves before you and before one another in you. And would you use this church to bear witness Lord Jesus, to who you are in this world. I want to pray now as well for the upcoming meeting. It's curious, in my mind at least, that we have a text like this on a day like this because we are now presented, it really is an opportunity, to talk about things that are big in some ways, but they're not really that big, but to talk about things that have to do with money and plans and future. But we get to talk about them in light of our faith in you and our awareness that we are brothers and sisters in you. So Holy Spirit, would you be present now? Would the meeting be worship as well? We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.